Brother James said we'll be in Hebrews chapter 3 again, looking at verse 17. I'd like to <clears throat> begin by reading uh, verse 12 through, through uh, 19. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that, there, that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let us pray. Father, once again we come uh, this day, Lord, to... Uh, Offer our worship and praise, Lord, to bring our prayers and petitions before you as the great living God, the one who can answer all prayers, the only one who is able to even hear our prayers, God, and, and work miracles. Lord, we come to you because you have done just that. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ, and we can come because uh, the greatest miracle, the work of salvation, is evident is true and it's a reality for our lives Lord if it weren't for this miraculous feat of divinity this work that Christ has done upon the cross we could not even come before you Lord and you would not be willing to hear our prayers Lord out of our disobedience we've sinned against you and we come and ask for forgiveness God and we lay our sins at the foot of the cross or knowing that we can take upon ourselves the righteousness of Christ because he has said that that is exactly what he gives to those who belong to him. And Lord, we just look to that in thankfulness and joy or that we would be surrounded by the righteousness of Christ in everything that we say and think and that we do. Lord, and we just come this day asking to receive from your Holy Spirit the, the truths of Christ and him crucified, that we would look to this scripture, Lord, and and truly listen to the voice of God, for it is you who is speaking, Lord. It is not the tongue of men, but it is the voice of God from heaven who is calling all men to repent. Lord, calling, you, uh, calling on you, we are to hear this voice, Lord, and to give us the ability and to instill within our minds and our conscience and our hearts the, the willing desire to repent, Lord, to trust in Christ and we come, Lord, just asking that you would receive our worship. Lord, then it would be glorifying to you that it would be exalting of Christ and that we would not uh, make much of ourselves, but that we would lift him up and praise him in adoration and love. Lord, and with love for one another that we would look to these scriptures uh, that we would be the best Christ followers that a sinner saved by grace may be. Lord, and that in following Christ, we would be an example to one another, that we would uh, cause one another to be spurred unto righteousness and to holy living. And God, and that by this word, we would be changed forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may notice that we're coming to a close this this week and next week of chapter 3. And it's almost like the Lord has saved the, the most convicting part for last. And indeed you may see that this morning as we read verse 17 again. It says, And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And by reading the text, you may see where the title of today's sermon comes from. 
For it is true that we are bodies falling in the wilderness, but we are failing bodies. And that is why the Word of God is given that our failures may be brought to light, and that is in the light of Jesus Christ, so that we may see in that light just what it is we are battling against, just how strong the opposition is, just how strong the flesh is that it would so set its desires against the spiritual things of God. But then in it we must also see how much more powerful Christ is. And so once again we find ourselves assembled another Sunday as the Lord has seen fit to tarry. And His mercy and His grace afford us even another opportunity to look at His gospel here in Hebrews chapter 3. And as we look at the gospel, we see that this grace and mercy of our Lord has afforded us an opportunity to see the gospel that is of the Son, Jesus Christ. It's a saving gospel. It's a gospel that is indeed a true gospel, where no other gospel is a true gospel, where no other news is a good news in comparison to Christ. For this is the only message that created man will ever hear. This is the only message that we will ever hear that offers forgiveness, that offers righteousness, that offers salvation, that offers life eternal, that grants reconciliation to the one triune God. And all of this by the life and by the work and by the blood of one man who is nothing less than God incarnate. This is Jesus who is the Christ. The one who has died and in it has gained victory over death and has done so at His own resurrection. He has even now ascended to the Most High in order that the Gospel, this good news, this only good message, may be effective. This is the means by which we would receive the grace of God. There Christ has ascended and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father. And He is there interceding. No other gospel tells us of a God who does that. There's no other story. There's no other even fictional story of a God who would ascend into heaven and would Uh, bring reconciliation to those who are His. No other God is able. No other God is willing. And no other gospel does such. And you may think, I've heard this before. Amen. You'll hear it again. I just pray that this morning that we would really all consider this text because it is very, very sobering. To see what the Lord would have to say to His people concerning this message. It was heard over and over again. The Messiah was preached. The Messiah was taught in Judaism. The Messiah was missed. The Messiah was overlooked. He was spat upon, scourged, beaten, killed. And they missed it all. And the gospel was still preached. And even before Christ died, he preached the gospel. And many heard it. And then time after time again when he preaches the gospel, even the disciples must come and ask Christ what he meant by these things. Even Peter not understanding that Christ would have to go to the cross to die for man's sin. He could not be King of kings and Lord of lords and Lord of the Sabbath. He could not fulfill all of Old Testament Scripture. And He could not save a single man unless He go to the cross. That is why it made no sense for the thief on the cross to say, Come down, save yourself and us also. It couldn't happen that way. It would not happen that way. For if Christ was to save Himself, He would not be to save us. And if He was to save us, He could not save Himself. And so here is this gospel message that we hear 
again and again. And I say to you this morning, please listen to this message as if it was the first time. We've talked about it over and over again through the past weeks. Uh, the danger of a hardened heart. A hardened heart is just that, as we'll see it described this morning, as one who has heard the gospel and who has grasped the truth and knows that the truth is true and yet they remain unchanged. For their knowledge has not created within them any desire to serve the Christ, any desire to put off the corruptions of the flesh. But I'm here to tell you that the gospel is effective. The gospel is a saving gospel. And if you leave here feeling the way that you do every single week after hearing this message and that not be spurred to do good works for the kingdom of Christ and for the sake of Christ, out of love for Christ, then there is an issue. There is where a heart is hardened. Yet Christ is there interceding this very moment. Asking him on his behalf that God would save. Knowing that those who belong to him shall be saved. And they shall not remain the same. You know that's really if we think about any type of saving. It's to be saved and to removed from a situation or circumstance. Not to be in that same circumstance. Saved from a heart attack means that you're no longer having a heart attack. Saved from a car wreck where you're crushed and your organs are bleeding out and yet you still live, that means that they bleed no more. To be saved from a shipwreck means that you're no longer floating adrift, means that your circumstance has changed. And this must also be true of the gospel. So we see that many people have heard this gospel. Many people have preached this gospel. And many have accepted it. Many have turned from it. And many have done nothing at all with it. Yet the historically accurate depiction of the life of Christ is not enough. I can bring you all the evidence, and indeed you have it. I can have pictures. I can have data. I can have video. And the historical evidence is not enough. Many men, though seeing the prophecies of the Messiah fulfilled before their eyes, still did not heed the word. They had the proof and did not heed. Though many after... Hearing the testimonies of eyewitnesses still did not hearken to the warnings. Death is beset us all. Adam was given a promise. Genesis chapter 2. In the day that you eat of the fruit, surely you will die. And then we're also told that God is most certainly not like man that he should lie. Numbers chapter 23. So we have the promise from God that upon sinfulness, upon sin, committing an iniquity against a just and holy God, there will be death. And then we have this promise that also says God is not like men that he should lie. God is saying, I will punish sin. You will die. And then the Bible says he doesn't lie. Where does that leave us with the gospel? Where does that leave us with the message of Christ that we indeed have sinned and I don't believe anyone in here would raise their hand and say that they're sinless. God doesn't lie. He must punish sin. Everything that He says shall be and everything that He wills will be done into completion. The text today speaks just of such a situation. Everything that He wills and everything that He promises. But indeed we serve a God who is a long-suffering God. It says that He's long-suffering toward us. We're not willing that any should perish. What a marvelous statement from a holy, righteous, just, yet gracious God. 
long-suffering toward usward. Usward. The people of God. The people who would hear the gospel and respond with repentance and faith. Not willing that we should perish. In essence, when he says this, and as the gospel is preached, and as creation is seen, and as life is lived, every man is seeing that God exists simply by creation. He's hearing that God is true by His Word. And this leaves every man accountable for the truth that is heard. Still some today, even in this very room, will leave in an hour, hour and a half after they eat lunch, and they will never again consider their sin before a holy God. To truly consider. Not just simply to go before the Lord and say, yes, I am a sinner. But to consider that sin and be crushed under the weight and guilt of it. And thereby see the mercy as Christ relieves by giving us a yoke that has a burden that is light. You can't take Christ's easy yoke. Without first bearing the burden of one that is too heavy. The gospel demands it. His word demands it. And that is exactly what the text deals with. So before you leave today. Before you draw pictures or fall asleep in your pew. I ask you to hear what the text is saying about Jesus Christ. For it would be dangerous to forsake the opportunity to respond with repentance and faith. The two that cannot be separated for one to believe must mean that he believes truly with repentance. That he responds to the gospel with sorrowfulness, with turning from his sin. Yes, repentance does mean turning from sin because to repent means to be sorry for, to be uh, broken over. And you cannot be sorry. My mom taught me this. You can say sorry all you want, but you're going to say it till you mean it. It's really what repentance is. To be sorrowful to the point that it changes your actions. And that can be seen and comprehended with words, but most certainly by actions will it be evident that this is true. You may feel as if you might have another chance because you plan on coming back next week or you plan on coming back Wednesday. Or you may feel that your lip service outweighs your heart and the lack of fruit thereof. That is to say that you may feel like simply because you come to church or because that you say that you're a Christian that this message is not important. That this text is something that you've heard and you don't need to hear it again. But I say to you, listen to it as if it was anew. Be assured that before you the Word of God this morning roars like a lion, stopping all of the prey of death in its tracks, whereby we are running headlong into death and destruction. And there seems that there is no hope and yet the this roaring lion, this word of God, sounds to halt the fleeing kindred of Satan. That is every man without Christ. Stopping him in his tracks. And serving to draw you near to the Savior. Hell's tongue is the deceived heart. The heart of hardness. The heart that follows after earthly things. And the appetite of it compels all men to run into her belly. Verse 17 is indeed an appeal to those within death's grasp. While at the same time, for those who know the gospel and know the Christ of the gospel and who obey and follow and love and worship the Christ of the gospel, it is a reminder to these few who have hearkened to do not wonder. You are prone to wandering. O oh, mere man, prone to wonder.
Verse 17 says, And with whom was he angry for 40 years? This is a question that has a correct answer. And like every good teacher, there's a clue to the answer in the question, right? We're given a time period. In the previous verse, those who came out of Egypt led by Moses, angry for 40 years, this could only be one people, right? And what we have is an analogy that every man and woman and child must apply to himself or herself. Who is the unbeliever? The question asked. Is it you? Is it me? Sounds a lot like the conversation about who would betray Christ, right? Everyone wanting to know, is it me? Is it I? This is what we must be provoked to think this morning. And again, who indeed has provoked the living God? And as the epistle to the Hebrews is given in order that men may stay the Christian course, that is indeed why the text is written so that we who here may stay the course, may continue to walk with Christ, may move from one level of glory to the next until these bodies have become resurrected and are complete and are perfect and are without sin. That is the main objective behind this Word of God being given to these people this morning, given to us as a church. But it challenges every man again to see himself next to Christ, the perfect one of God. Not only to see yourself next to Christ in a sense of comparison, but moving us to see ourselves next to Christ as in walking next to Christ. We compare ourselves to Christ to see our depraved state and then we are moved to also see ourselves next to Christ that we would not stray for He is the only way. For He is the shepherd leading His sheep. And that's just what the text does. The Hebrew people who initially received this epistle, they would claim, of course, to be a religious people. They would even still claim to follow the God of their ancestors, the God of Moses, as we've seen, the God of Abraham. But the analogy will soon serve its purpose to prove that every man is deserving of divine justice. Every man, woman, and child, again, has earned their spot in hell and the accompanying death. Wages are given where they are earned. Wouldn't it be very interesting to consider that the Bible instructs the one who is employing to pay the wages every day at the end of the day and then some to think that that same God would indeed give us this promise of death upon eating the fruit, upon sinning, And then think that somehow he wouldn't pay. Somehow we wouldn't reap the reward of sin that is death. What a foolish thought that man would have. We're called to notice the representation that is made of those unbelieving followers. With whom was he angry? Those who are with us but not of us. There is the answer. And I'm going to speak about this again in just a moment, but the text is very clear. We're talking about those who God has delivered. Let my people go, right? Speaking the words that God had given him, Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go. This is God saying these are His people. Yet the Bible is clear in verse 17. He was angry with His own people. And we somehow think that God's not angry. I see church signs. I used to love to send pictures of church signs to John when he was here. One of the ones I'll never forget 
here in Jacksonville, says, contrary to popular belief, I hate no one, quote, God. And yet there are scriptures, Psalm 5, 5, hate all workers of iniquity, he says. And I believe it's in Hosea. All their evil is at Gilgal. I begin to hate them there. I think it's chapter, chapter 9. I could be wrong about that. Don't hold me to it. He says it. And that's, those aren't the only texts. And yet somehow, the religious people then and today think that God is not an angry God. Therefore, they will not see the analogy they will not see the introspective question that is posed. And indeed they will reap the wages of sin. Who is God angry with? All who have sinned. Most assuredly those who with a hardened heart have taken the gospel trampled it underfoot, kept it for self, not responded, those who are with us but not of us. Truly, each assembly contains someone like these in their midst. And as with those who wandered in the wilderness for this great length of time, listed here 40 years, God was angry. God is angry. You know the worst part about it? These were the people that the world knew to be the children of God. You know, it's one thing to sin out of ignorance. But the text that we have been reading throughout Hebrews chapter 3 is the sinfulness of knowing and hardening the heart. And still following after the flesh. We are called this morning to recognize. That this word is not for the unbeliever. This is not for the unbeliever. The natural man cannot know it. Cannot comprehend it. For they are spiritually discerned. This is a word for the people of God. God truly has proven that within him is no partiality with such a statement. However, he must remain just. Even more so, how angry can God be today justly and righteously with his people as they know the truth, yet still follow after sin? Righteousness, being far from their desires and goals, for who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness? There is the question. The ungodly. So this must serve to tell us that even if we claim to be followers of Christ and we suppress this truth and we do not hearken to the word of God and we do not battle with sin and we do not put off the corruptions of the flesh, then we are those who are ungodly. Profession is deadly. Profession is deceitful with no submission and without confirmation. Profession is a ride straight to hell. Many make it and have no submission to the Lord of Lords. Have no confirmation to his person, his character, his attributes. This is what it truly means to be a partaker Right? That we have this profession and confession that Jesus is the Christ to know that there is no life except for in Him. And as we confess and as we profess this name of Jesus Christ, we must submit to His authority. By submitting to that, we are partakers in His nature, in His grace, in His love, in His righteousness, in His justice. That's what the gospel is calling for. Works are no good. If they are not a result of the heart that is joyfully and continuously serving Christ the Creator. Truly, 
this is our dilemma. This is my dilemma. This is your dilemma. For many times the gospel has been preached before us, but the walls of our heart have held it out. That's a hardened heart. Or even worse, that the gospel finds a crack. It finds a way in, but the walls of the hardened heart are trapping her captive. Searing the conscience. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? No man has died without sin. Not those in the wilderness, nor none before, or none since. Yet there remains one who has, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. He has died without sin. The one who has died to give us life. And we continue to look at sin as acceptable, as normal, as simply forgiven without understanding that the wrath of God has not been somehow narrowly avoided, but rather it has been broadly stricken against His own, His Son. That believing in Him, you may have life in His name. The wrath of God has not been simply escaped, narrowly avoided. It has not been put off, but indeed it has been put on the one, the only begotten, monogenes, unique one, the Lamb of God Himself. And it was not sparingly given to Christ, but it was dropped on Him like a bomb. Every bit of it at one time. An overwhelming amount of wrath. And it was because of your sin. Do you realize that if everyone on earth had never existed except for you, you have lived long enough, everyone here, to bring an unfathomable amount of wrath against Jesus the Christ. If you were to belong to Him. It's not been avoided, but it has been taken. It has been with the bitter cup drunken down. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5 says through verse 11. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us. So that we would not crave evil things as though they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end, ends of the ages have come. <clears throat> Pretty plain, isn't it? We don't have to look very far for sin. We need only look at ourselves. The Bible says we look... As if in a mirror dimly and we turn and we forget what we saw. That is exactly the point of the text. Many will mock God and His wrath as if it will never occur. But I submit to you, if the wrath of God has not already occurred, it is because you will, in, you will experience it yourself. But if indeed the wrath of God you know has occurred, it's because Christ has incurred it. What a sobering reminder if you would view the wrath of God in one of these two ways. If it has not come, you're destined for hell. If it has come, you have been spared by Christ. 
does this speak of you? God's wrath is not some unrighteous anger looking for a place to land, but instead it is a truth, it is a promise, and it is made inherent in His attributes. I say this because even before creation existed, these things were inevitable. God would punish sin before creation ever existed. God has always and will always be a just God. Before the existence of sin, God is set against it, all things that are not good, and He has promised to punish such. No escape. And yet we look at sin and we miss the point that all sin is unbelief. It's unbelief. My idolatry, immorality, stealing, cursing, whatever sin you enjoy the most is all unbelief. If you can still without battle willfully curse, willfully lie, habitually do these things and steal and drink into drunkenness and hate and murder and lust and idolize, then the flame of unbelief is being fanned in you. It's being built up. And you know what's funny is as the flame grows, as a fire grows, whatever it's in is being consumed. The bigger the fire, the bigger the catastrophe, right? Small fire can be easily put out. A large fire will most certainly bring destruction. This is true of unbelief. This is true of habitual sin in the life of the believer as his heart is hardened and he knows the gospel and he does not conform and he does not put off these things and he does not do the hard things that the body cannot do of itself but require the leading of the Spirit of God. This man will be burned to his death. And then in his death again be burned. And it holds true that no flame burns without God's knowledge. And likewise, as this describes death, his knowledge also brings life. God is not surprised by anything that is happening. Knowing what God expects. Knowing by the conscience the difference between good and evil. The Bible says God gives a conscience. We may know what is morally right and wrong. This knowledge brings death, but also the divine knowledge of Christ by the Holy Spirit, according to God's will, brings life. Knowledge of who He is, by the knowledge of who His Son is, the one whom He sent into the world. There's no other way. And if there be any sin in you today, I beg you, I beg you to bring it before Christ. Confess and follow Him. If you think that no one knows, He knows the hearts of men. If you think that you're a good person, you're in imminent danger. If your response to where will you go when you die is I know that I am a good person, then you are in danger of hellfire. There is no doubt. God says it. Because He Himself is saying you are not good. There is none good. He said it when the man came to him, right? The rich young ruler. Why do you call me good? If Christ can respond this way, how can you say that you're good? There's the biggest, I guess, if you will, clue to being hell bound if you think that you're good. The Lord couldn't give us a bigger clue. If you think that you're good. Imminent danger. 
Only those who know they are wretched will enter His rest. Only those who know they are wretched are searching for rest. You can't know this without seeing Christ. Those who dare not employ His wrath but cry for His mercy, those are the ones who will receive His rest. Those who know His anger yet know His provision and salvation. Those are the ones who will enter His rest. True salvation in Christ is not merely a recognition of His existence as the God, man, and Savior, but it is the recognition of a light that reveals all truth, and that includes the truth that we are sinners destined for hell without Him. Both undeserving and helpless And so we look back at the text and it says, And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? How gracious is God with us? Forty years of grumbling. And they're dead. And they did not enter into the promised land. I think of myself and Charlie and other men of the congregation and think how gracious was God to save me at a younger age. And then I think about James and Jody. What a marvelous work. It could have been 40 years and the bodies could have fell to destruction. And the people of this church have seen it. Older folks saved. No different than I, but sinning against God for a lot longer time. And He's faithful to save and He's merciful. And He was angry with these people for 40 years. And they were stricken. And what do we do with our salvation? What do we do with the knowledge of Christ? What do we do with sin? Think how marvelous, how merciful God has been. Long, long, long suffering. And we're still here. Still in the wilderness. Given a great gospel light. Given... A wonderful Savior who is able to save, who is willing to save, who is calling men even now in this room and women to repent. His Word that is written that we have on our phones. We have 15 print copies at home. We have it on our computers. We have it at our very fingertips and we betray it every day. And we have the light of Christ which is shining in our life which causes us by the conscience even to know right from wrong. We have one another. A supernatural love from God. An accountability to one another. And what do we do with it? We're in a wilderness. We can either take up our cross and put off sin or we can keep the gospel for ourselves, never submit to it, never enjoy it, think about it once a week and go straight to hell. There is no in-between. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is just punishment. Curse of the sin. What we need is Christ. What we need is to see our sin and be broken over it. Not just once, not just Sundays, not just Wednesdays. But every time that we open our eyes to realize the mercy and grace of God, that He would allow us to repent. I thought about it. I met a man 
went to a local church here in town and he was asking me about eternal security. And he made a statement that he thought that if you did not repent of every sin and ask for forgiveness before you died, just one, if you forgot just one, and died without repenting, died without asking the Lord to forgive, you would go to hell. It sounds somewhat plausible until you realize that you are not in control of your life. That you're not afforded the next moment. That this life truly is but a vapor. And I said to that man, what about your pastor? If he is driving down the road and his child is misbehaving and he pulls over to punish the child according to scripture. To deliver his soul from hell. And maybe he gets a little too angry as he's getting out of the car. And he steps into traffic and he's hit. What will that man do? Didn't have a chance. That is why the Christian lifestyle is a lifestyle of habitual prayer, habitual supplication, habitual repentance, because the reality is that there will be a moment and we all will die in a moment where we will not have a chance to ask for forgiveness. But because we have so relied and trusted on Christ, it has been forgiven. He said it on the cross. It is finished. It's not because you pray enough. It's not because you do enough. It's because you trust enough in Christ. Because you love enough of Christ. Because you so serve the one who has done all of these things for you. And so my appeal to you this morning as those who are saved and those who are unsaved, is to remember God's wrath, even though it may not in eternity, does exist temporally for all, even His own people here. He was angry with sinners. And God is still angry today. The truth is that the church loves to, and when I say the church, I don't mean this local church, but the professing church loves to say, come as you are. And there is some reality and truth to that. But usually it's come as you are, leave as you are. And I submit to you that the Bible says, come as you are, leave as I am. Amen. Leave as Jesus Christ. Let the old man be crucified. The new man be Jesus himself. Led by the Spirit. Filled by the Spirit. Known by God. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, God, we just thank you that there is life in the name of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, Jesus Christ is life. cannot stand for anything else. For He is good. He is perfect. Lord, He is without spot and He is without blemish. And we know, God, that He is seated right next to You. Lord, and how merciful have You been if our names would be uttered by the Savior. If He would intercede on our behalf. If He would apply His life's work, His death's work to us. God, I pray this morning that there'll be people in this congregation or people at this assembly who are not yet the church that they would profess Jesus Christ, that they would be broken over sin, God, that they would bring it before the foot of the cross, Lord, and live every moment for You. Lord, I have family in these pews. Lord, I have sisters in these pews. Lord, there are parents and grandparents in these pews that may not know Christ. This morning, God, we pray as your people that your word be so powerful. 
has to remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Lord, I have an unborn son who needs salvation, needs Christ. Lord, we pray that you would minister mightily, holy, and that the scripture be fulfilled, that this word would not return void. God, that truly is room full of once natural men could be filled with those who are spiritual or born from above by the Spirit. Lord, we thank you for all the blessings that we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can look to the text of Scripture and see not just words, but see a vine, see a shepherd see a brother, a son, a lamb, living water, bread of life. Or we cannot see it with our eyes, but we look to those things that are unseen. Or we trust in Christ. We ask that you would receive our worship this day, Lord, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, Lord, for your sake, for the sake of your kingdom, for your glory, for your honor, your exaltation. Lord, we ask that you would continue to minister. Lord, that the Spirit would not be quenched, would never be turned off, would never be ignored. That we would pardon ourselves from his accompaniment. Lord, that we would cling to the cross and that we would cling to this Christ. Believing, have life in His name. God, we thank You for all of these earthly blessings. Lord, we thank You for the, the food that has been prepared next door. Lord, we just ask that You would truly bless it. Lord, not as a matter of habit with our country, with our civilization, but truly, God, bless the food. Bless those who would receive it, Lord, that as they would take each bite, that they would have thoughts of Christ and what it truly means to partake in Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.